This is season one of the Free Flow Podcast, a media project of Free Flow Institute. I'm Chandra Brown, founder and director of Free Flow Institute. Welcome to the Free Flow Podcast. Our show is supported in part by the Montana Arts Council and the Prop Foundation, and our theme music was created by Nate Hedgie and Wartime Blues. In 2018, Free Flow Institute ran our first two field courses. The idea was to build writing workshops that take place on rivers, to offer river trips with complexity and dimension where learning could happen and people could find precious, elusive space and time for their creative work. With Free Flow, we wanted to bring together education, landscape and river conservation, community, and creativity. So people signed up and later showed up for a 2018 program called Wild Journalism on Montana's wild and scenic Missouri River with Hal Herring, and then later a creative writing workshop with William Dubuis on the main Salmon River in Idaho. That summer, the Free Flow community established its roots. Our mission is to connect people to wilder, precious places, but also to connect people to one another emerging writers to professional writers, creatives to conservationists, educators to students, established mentors to the next generation of leaders. Since those first two programs in 2018, we've run courses on the Rogue, Green, Blackfoot, and Yellowstone rivers, as well as several pandemic-era remote workshops. We've grown our network of instructors, contributors, alumni, and students exponentially. And the students remain the heart of our community. They raise good questions and challenge us to be better as an organization. They also collect and create really good stories. And so today on the podcast, we feature the stories and voices of two of our alumni. Both of these stories are ostensibly about birds, dippers, or water oozles specifically. And both are also about so much more. Lauren Smith is a writer and science communicator, originally from Ohio, now based in Montana, where she works as the communications director at a small nonprofit focused on owl research. In 2019, Lauren joined FreeFlow on the Green River with Pam Houston, and in 2020, she participated in our first remote workshop series, and she now serves on the board of the FreeFlow Foundation, which raises funds to support FreeFlow students from low-income or marginalized communities. Today, we are honored to feature Lauren's piece called An Ornithologist's Response here on the podcast. She originally wrote the bones of this essay in 2016, immediately following the election. It's gone through several permutations since then, including this lovely iteration. Here's Lauren Smith. I wish I could write only about birds. That I could go back to how it was, when my dreams held shards of words and images of flitting sparrows. Dreams of opening eyes to the wonder of the natural world through birds. Dreams of articulating connections with the earth so deep I feel the words but cannot speak them. These dreams are skies filled with murmurations of starlings, clouds of thousands of birds, 
so thick that all I can do is stand and watch as they swarm around me in mesmerizingly complex shapes. A cohesive flock responding as one, but with no leader, sinuously pulsating and shifting. No bird touching another, close enough that I can feel the air from their wings as they pass inches from my face. I want to write about the dipper, the water oozel, the small dark bird the color of wet slate, a bird that lives the streams of my heart country here in the west. The dipper plies along the stream's edge, barely visible against the slick black rocks. Waiting, dancing a ballet in time to the music of the stream, bended legs and wings suddenly propel the bird into the water, where it dives, plucking insects from under rocks to feed its growing young. I watch dippers when I need assurance that the world is not as harsh as it appears to be. The truths of the individuals are the truths of the species, we tell ourselves. I cannot watch all dippers to know what they do, as much as I might wish to. My sample size is only a tiny fraction of the whole. It's accepted that what we see in these few means something about them all. As an ornithologist, I accept this to be true, but as a human, I sometimes refuse the evidence. What he, there are so many he's, what he says about them, about us, about me, is not truth. The truth of the few, the loud ones, the ones in power, that is not the truth of the many. Theirs is not the truth of our country. Theirs is not the truth of birds. Bobbing on the edge of the river, staring at the swift current, the dipper waits for the moment to slide between water drops and merge into the spirit of the water. Listen. Listen. I want you to hear the sound of wing beats. I want you to hear empathy. Empathy in the shape of a heart, in the shape of a fist. Listen to the dipper's song, to the stream, to the sound of our voices. Listen. No matter how much it hurts, no matter how much you cry, no matter, because their song is my song, is your song, is our song. Hear our wing beats, and sometimes hear them stop, and sometimes, all the time, every time, that's the worst sound of all. My tears join the tears of the river, and we vow that from this water new lives will be born and spared of this anguish. We vow, even as our tears flow more freely, even as more wing beats still, denied the chance to live safe and well, denied the dignity of a death surrounded by loved ones. I don't know how to say goodbye over the phone or from time zones away because I've never had the chance because every time was like the first time, and every time my heart stopped, like a fingerling trout dead in my hand. 
because every time all I could hear was the sound of the creak of my breath of my tears, rolling over stones, over memories, over denial, over grief. I make my hands into fists and make them into a heart. Then I open them like a dam released. When I watch dippers, when I count wing beats, when I listen to bird song mingling with river song, it's there underneath it all. I will not let you take away this music. I will not let you force silence upon us. You will hear us. We are pebbles smoothed by the running water at our most beautiful, most cohesive when we are in the river. We watch as the dipper dives above us, dark eyes like dark stones searching for the food we shelter. We are the gravel, the nooks and crannies which harbor the stoneflies and mayflies that feed the dipper and the trout. We are the foundation and the world layers on top of our geology, the stones of us once part of long ago mountains, no longer reaching the skies, but not inconsequential. We feel the power in ourselves. Without us, all of us, every pebble, every rock, every color, every size, all of us, the sound of flowing water changes. The stoneflies, minnows, trout, osprey change, and the branching lines connecting willows, warblers, moose, frogs change. And then we all change, and none of it is as it was. The diversity of life disappears. The insects are gone, the songbirds are gone, and the air is silent. The spring is silent, and the world begins to die slowly, in that silence. And I cannot, will not, shall not be silent. I will yell. My words will leap garbled and true from the stream and the fishermen wading the river will hear. And if he listens hard enough, long enough, with his true ears and eyes and heart enough, he will understand. This is my new dream, the one the starlings murmur to me in the night, when I can't sleep because my heart stream flows too wildly but can't escape my fingers, when my words are too well hidden under submerged boulders, when the dipper dives but finds nothing to feed its starving young, when there are too many he's that need to understand. Rivers don't forget their dams. The pebbles and stoneflies and willows, warblers, moose, frogs don't forget. But we, like water, move forward into the newly flowing future with sunlight and hope. Zoe Greenberg is also based in Missoula, where she's working toward her master's in environmental studies at the University of Montana. 
She's a senior editor for Camus Magazine, and her background includes training vultures, watching hawks, doing raptor work, writing science articles, teaching nature programs, and taking folks to see the whales in Washington's San Juan Islands. Zoe entered the free flow orbit in 2020 when we offered our second remote workshop series. This essay, called Between the Lines, features Zoe's unique voice and style and more dippers. Here's Zoe. I was lying on an old and tired rock at the bottom of the Grand Canyon and listening to the pleasantries of camp cascade down the walls. I watched the river, waiting for something to cheer me up, a monarch floating its way to Mexico or a fish rising to say something good. Each afternoon, when our college class of 16 beached on a sliver of canyon side, I tiptoed away, searching for a nook. Just somewhere to sit alone, to worry or wonder in fits of river dream. To tease a lizard out of its narrow home or to follow an insect to the mouth of its lair. To walk my own line into desert story. I crept out of sight, seeking surprise outside the familiarity of human chatter or soft guitar. That day, though, curled on rock, I wasn't interested in story. I was nursing a torn meniscus in my left knee, the fleshy fibers raging for months of clambering, and I was thinking about a person I loved who was drinking themselves to death in another state. The river water, usually glittering and gushing, looked limp and purposeless then. The towering rocks of the canyon squeezed. The sun tucked behind the rim, a clear reminder that I would stay cold. I sighed. From my sideways vantage point, I found a line of mammal tracks in the sand, the pattern seemingly straight and true, the tiny prints crossing my own sandal tracks which spiraled, evidence to all that I could not decide which rock to lie upon. I had, in fact, touched several. I was 24 years old, meandering along the Colorado River, searching for some semblance of a straight path, yet I could not find it, whether searching for a rock or searching for a future. Perpetually, I exposed myself to change. I chose to live on boats instead of houses, switched colleges six times, oscillated between ocean and mountains, and rarely stayed in one place for more than three months. In that moment, with my cheek pressed against cold rock, rather than chasing story, I stared at mammal tracks and yearned for a line as straight as theirs. It's a whirlwind, the push and pull of youth. Be scrappy, be pragmatic, pursue adventure, settle down, stay close to family, leave your family. Be something linear, linear works. Laughter reached my ears, canyon light fell, and I curled tighter. And then a small bird appeared. She landed with assertion on a stone directly in front of me, perched and peering into my face, looking, 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 head tilted with a white eyelid blinking code. After several moments of staring at each other, without warning and mid-blink, she plopped face first into the river. She swam beneath the surface, flapping her tiny wings like a submerged seabird. But I wasn't by the sea. I knew birds, but not this bird. And it's hard to explain, to someone who thinks birds are just all right, what a new species can do to a heart in need. But that vigorous bird shocked me out of my sorrow. I watched her at the bottom of a pool, kicking leaf litter aside, pumping her wings to stay in place, her breath held, my startled face looming. 
When she resurfaced, the river tumbled off her tightly packed feathers, each droplet whole and unmarred. The glittering river stayed with the bird. What, I thought, what is that? She had feathered gumption and spirit. When she stood, her body pumped up and down as though she were dancing to some secret river beat. I watched the bird for another hour, maybe two. I was enamored with her moves. She flew erratic. She zigzagged up and down the river, bank to bank, out of sight, and then just when I thought she'd abandon me, she'd return. The river stones around were covered in her markings. She knew this stretch of water well. A classmate found me there like that. His blue, almond eyes pulled me away, and when I looked back to the river, the bird was gone. American dippers are the only diving songbird species in North America. Scientists describe them as chunky, with stubby wings, short square tails, neutral gray feathers, and a laterally compressed bill, whatever that means. I would say they are the color of charcoal, and their bill is a bug slayer, and the way they use their wings and tail is hilarious because they flap and wiggle and bounce their way between Riverstone with more comedic potential than any stand-up artist on two legs. Dippers make me laugh, and sometimes they make me sad, because I envy their double world beneath and above the hard, soft line of river, their options ever infinite. I find a dipper's non-webbed feet marvelous because they seem ill-equipped to handle the strong currents that knock me down when I clamber over for a closer look, the rushing water tipping me groundward into a pile of embarrassed limbs as the dipper watches with twig legs splayed firm and sturdy on rocks as slippery as ice, blinking. I was born in the Colorado mountains near cold, fast-flowing water. Dipper water. Last summer, age 28, I returned to those mountains to see how they felt. As I sensed home, I pulled over and slid down a bank to the lapping water's edge, and not five minutes later, a dipper flashed by my face, crossed to the opposite bank, and shoved a squirming invertebrate into a gaping, bubblegum pink mouth that squalled and squalled, as though no single morsel could possibly satiate its teeny form. The busy parent dipped and pumped beside her young. I beamed at them all, giddy to find my first dipper nest here, so close to my own squalling grounds just around the bend. The nest was a mound of matter tucked up beneath a rock overhang, close enough to the river surface that as I watched through binoculars in the following weeks, droplets always danced into view. Those parents worked tirelessly. Up and down the river they flew, delivering bug after bug, Foraging with such fortitude that I felt guilty merely sitting there. I felt I should pull my weight, the weight of watching, and at least shuttle a few protesting caddisflies into the nestlings' gaping mouths. To give the parents a break. They must have taken breaks. Perhaps tucked away in some small sliver of Colorado mountain, just staring at the world, wandering in fits of river dream before weaving their way back to camp. In the western United States, dippers begin breeding activities in March. The female chooses the site. She looks for horizontal platforms that will shield the nest from floods and predators, the two primary threats to her progeny. Overhangs are preferred to protect the nest against weather. Sometimes they choose the hidden space behind a waterfall, forever veiled. If the site proves successful one year, the dipper pair will return to the same spot the next year, called site fidelity. 
Dippers are mostly monogamous. The male courts the female, stretching his neck and singing the kind of song that causes even non-birders to pause and listen. Burbly, melodic, and fast, the dipper song matches the pace of the riverine environment from which it emerges. If he is successful and she likes him, they form a pair bond. Both male and female build the nest, though the female is in charge of construction. She diligently dips moss, grass, and leaves into the river water below her site and designs the nest from the bottom up. As she forms the floor, she lays flat and spreads her wings, pushing down with all the might contained in her burly bird body. She does this to ensure the base of her family's collective world will be solid and water-sealed. Picture that, her strength poured into a floor, wings spread, her mind working to produce something worthy of holding living things, her things. Picture that. Once, I built a kayak, which was a terrible experience, but it did float, and I was proud, and I now hate table saws, but I do love the feeling of sitting in something formed from my own hands. I've always liked boats. Liking them led to living on them, and by living on boats, I learned about the lines of the sea. When I was 20, I sailed between those lines. Horizons, currents, windrows, squall lines, sail lines, decking, plumes of breath bursting from whales, lines of seabirds headed to some version of home. Whales cross oceans using a learned migratory route every year, a knowing of place embedded deep into their giant melon heads. Many seabirds smell their way back to land after foraging trips on the open blue, lines and spirals of flight, a mosaic of homing. Deep sea currents follow pathways defined by density and temperature in the topography of the sea floor. Storms march forward, clouds shoulder to shoulder. Living and non-living territories as fluid as the sea itself. And rivers? The banks form bumpers that shuttle the glorious rage of rapids from here to there and elsewhere. Phragmites form vertical lines, controversial. The sky forms a line of ceiling that follows the canyon territory when you lie on your back peering starward. Monarchs float lines and curl through the canyon to the dry gulf, tracing last year's path. Great blue herons beat wings up, down, and through, leaving their personal blue-gray trails in a wispy wake. And the dipper, songbird of the river, flies its territory day in and day out, a contained and beautiful fleeting fidelity. Thinking back on the stressful hours of building that kayak, I posit that I may have loved it more if I had wiggled into the cockpit, spread my wings, and pressed into the hole. If I had tried melding with the ribs of that boat instead of waiting for my shop days to end. If, like a dipper, I had tried to hold living things in my floor. If I had built from the bottom up instead of fantasizing over the result. If I had embraced the lines and curves of a nest, crafted by hand, by wing, and settled in. If I had inhaled the whispers of Windrow or seen the horizon in the belly of that boat. I still start projects with vigor and then abandon them for something better, something new, nudged by an insatiable eagerness. And eagerness, in all its commendable glory, complicates my process of nesting, of choosing a line to walk or a place to curl up for good. It prevents homing. 
Scientists describe dipper territories as linear because they patrol arteries of water. But really, dippers weave in flight, drawing ribbons through river air. Pairs nesting in the Colorado mountains hold territories of 900 meters, 3,000 feet. Imagine being a dipper and weaving over the same 3,000 feet of river for a whole summer, whizzing past the same landmarks each day, mapping the animals that share your territory, snatching their sensory footprint for later. The otter family splashing, the peregrine falcon shrieking from the cliff above, the fish children burbling, the mountain lion padding to the water's edge at night to lap at your water. The woman sitting cross-legged in a dress staring at your offspring, beaming. Imagine flying the same stretch of river every day. Would it eventually feel redundant to see the same cat lapping, the same otters wrestling, that same woman staring? The American Dipper is a western jewel, cupped in the winding corridors of the Rockies, Cascades, Sierra Nevadas, and Sierra Madre Mountains. A line exists between them and the eastern half of this continent. Being denizens of the mountains, dippers cannot traverse the plains of the continent's middle, and so they remain in the west. How do they stand it, knowing all those unexplored rivers lie east, pocketed with bug-filled pools and unmarked river stones? How do they stand it, knowing there are pools they will never swim? They must not know. Please, teach me how not to know. And yet... Dippers spend their winters wherever they want. Some move up or down in elevation. In Missoula County, where I currently live, dippers rarely leave their winter territories unless the waterways fully freeze. In British Columbia, however, dippers move upstream. The scientists, of course, say that these movements are tied to food availability as well as survivorship. Migrating is dangerous, so if a dipper can stay put, they do. And of course, the scientists are probably right. Dippers probably don't juggle the internal turmoil of whether or not to seek new river experience. They probably don't get tired of flying the same stretch of river. And they probably don't leave just to taste a better river and then immediately miss their old river. They probably don't build nests alongside every river they like because that requires energy they cannot spare. Because that would not be a sound evolutionary choice because such compulsive yearning for something better, something just around the bend, might not end well. And yet, sometimes, dippers do leave. Dippers are named for their dipping behavior, the river beat in their rump. Scientists say that a dipper dips more frequently when excited or disturbed. They believe that dipping is a way for individuals to communicate with each other amidst the soundscape of rushing water, when song or sound cannot quite reach between dipper comrades, mates, enemies, or between dipper children. Scientists also posit that the dip wards off predators, signifying vigor or fitness, or that dipping helps them balance against the rushing water. Others suggest the dip could aid the bird in visual triangulation during foraging, helping them measure their position in relation to their surroundings. An orientation dance. I like that. During my return to Colorado, I oriented. The place where I was born still roared through me. I returned to the tiny mountain village where my parents had owned the only grocery store, 
the same store from which I had stolen cowtails and lollipops and eaten them in the meadow where the grass was tall enough to hide my five-year-old form. I went back to the rivers and the hills that I used to climb, and I climbed them again. Like a dipper upon its favorite rock, I realighted with purpose. I even found shop owners who remembered me as a child running naked through the streets, chasing the village dogs and waving fistfuls of ladybugs at the puzzled mountain sun. Shop owners who remembered and missed my towering parents. Dad with the booming laugh, mom with leaves in her hair. I touched Colorado quartz, Clear Creek Canyon water, Indian paintbrush, and a few dipper feathers before dipping back into my life with depth perception. In returning to those mountains, I rewalked a territory coded into my bones, a line drawn straight from the marrow of childhood to the life I lead now. Every single place holds something worth loving. There are no flyover states. Someone nests there. Birds have territories because territories make sense. Birds need specific resources and protection from intruders to successfully pass their genes onward. They need to scope out a parcel of earth, mark it down, make a claim, and watch over the boundaries that guard next year's pulse of life. They need a temporary home. Most North American bird species try to breed every year, reassessing mates, habitats, food availability, nest camouflage, and they either pull the plug or they fly the same lines they flew the year before. Every year, there is this chance they will abandon their old nest for somewhere better. I picture a dipper homecoming several ways. A female returns to the doorway of last year's nest, her eyes sweeping over all the work to be done, all the holes to be patched, the re-camouflaging to achieve, a small murmur escaping her laterally compressed bill. She leaves. Or, she steps through the door, blinks her white eyelids, and lies down. She presses her wings to the floor and closes her eyes. She stays. I used to think that people who nested early must be pained by big dreams. I thought that mating and building a nest before seeing the world was a recipe for feeling stuck, an obstacle to walking new lines. But I have emotionally nested everywhere I've lived. In the Colorado mountains, in the thick carpet of my grandma's home, in Bellingham Bay, in Alaskan canneries, in Hawaii, where my mom belongs, in Cape Cod, in the holes of boats I didn't have to build myself, in my favorite glade in the forest outside State College, Pennsylvania, in Bar Harbor, Maine, in foreign jungles, in the depression beside that one creosote bush that smelled so nice, in the Grand Canyon, in the room where my dad and I play chess, in Missoula, Montana, in my sister's plant nursery, in the company of coyotes, in my faithful Toyota Tacoma named Julio, and in every campsite whose tiny patch of flat ground I can never stand to leave. I ramble ferociously, gratefully, and yet I always form nests, intangible floors, and I mark them in journal entries, emphasizing in cursive sprawl the importance of finding the same creosote bush in the same spot and lying down in the same way. I know I'll fly back. I pledge site fidelity to the nooks that make me whole. 
I meander, and yet, I follow lines along rivers, horizons, creeks, and canyons to places with floors where I may spread my wings, press down, and inhale a break from this big life. The Missoulian house I live in sits near a pair of dippers. I can usually find them if I listen closely and pay attention to the landmarks of their territory. I've learned to recognize the white-splattered river stones by their favorite foraging pools. I know which banks they prefer at sunset, where they like to preen, and which riffles they frequent. They let me sit close if I take my time and avert my eyes. In loving these birds, I have seen their territory for what it is, their temporary line. Their rushing, fish-filled, melodic, colorful, veiled line of water over which they fly every day and alongside which I walk just as often. I try to be like a dipper because they are hilarious and adventurous, but not too adventurous, and they have gumption and spirit and a bounce in their step, and they have sight fidelity, but the female is strong enough to make her floor alone, and they get to swim underwater and see the contours of pools filled with colors and sounds few creatures ever know. Go pool deep, I tell myself. Swim the same lines long enough to appraise the lodged logs and detritus and fish and note where the sun is most dappled and kind. Stay for just three seconds and see what happens. Three is less than four. The dipper comforts me because she bounces from rock to rock, scoping out new pools and diving to new depths. And the dipper humbles me because she flies the same territory every day and realights upon the same rocks with the same bounce in her step, always. In the creek near my temporary home, where the dipper pair lives, I undress and climb into the pools deep enough to hold me. The world looks different when I'm naked and cold and happy. Sometimes that's all it takes to see a nest anew. On that class trip through the Grand Canyon, we were required to row our classmates and instructors through one rapid, reading the water without help. When it was my turn, I had to row through flat water first, and within that glassy stretch, I ran us into rock walls. In the absence of rapid chaos, I floundered. The predictability of calm produced a panic in my flighty bones. When the rapid emerged around the bend, I sighed relief. I ran us straight and true, following moving lines, laughing into the eager water. I crawled out of the canyon with calluses. I healed my knee and found my loved one sobered. I graduated college and began studying birds, following them along rivers, horizons, creeks, and canyons, dipping through mountains in search of their nooks and their homing lines in the sky. I follow them now. I'm happy with chaos. I like tangled lines. My nest will have a woven, messy floor filled with quartz and kelp and dipper feathers, and I will love it with all of my burly bird body until I don't. And once I don't, I'll fly across the plains or climb distant hills, but my river stones will still be there. And so will she, holding the river beat down, before leaving her nest to melt into whichever blue-green pools call her name next. It's been an honor to share some of the work of our alumni. We'd love you to join the Free Flow community too. We still have some space left on our 2021 field courses. Get in touch soon and get outside with us this year. We'd love to share the river with you. Until then, 
Thanks for sharing the podcast with your friends. And thanks to the Montana Arts Council, the Prop Foundation, and the Free Flow community for supporting the podcast. You can subscribe to the Free Flow podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Until next time, get outside, do what feels good, and keep in touch. <laughs>